Father in heaven, we're thankful today that we can come, we can spend a few moments, and we ask that your spirit would be with us in this time, and uh, that you would speak to us individually, and we thank you. We come in Christ's name. Amen. I'm going to talk today about the economy. Let me just make a disclaimer. I'm not an economist. I don't play one on TV. Um, but I'm still talking about the economy. And um, I know that many of you are business people and probably know a lot more about any business section I'll talk about than I do. And I'm glad that you're here. And feel free to correct me afterward and uh, so we can all grow. But... Um, uh, I'm also going to be low tech today because I, I uh, wanted to have the lights on instead of off. So They recently did a poll, New York Times and CBS, actually July 24th to 28th, so a recent poll. And in that poll they discovered that Americans are concerned about two things. I checked it out this morning by talking to some people not from ASI that didn't have their badges on, like the UPS store and other places down, downtown here, and I found out the poll is correct. What is the uh, largest concern of Americans today? What is it, you suppose? What? The economy. And what was the second one? Health care. Exactly right. And as I heard that, I recognized that these were Jesus' largest concerns as well. In the Gospels... He wrote more about finance, if you, if you study it, than almost anything else, more than heaven or hell. <clears throat> so he recognized that people's number one concern would be the economy and finances. Secondly, he did more healing than he did preaching. Amen. So it seems as though Jesus is right up to date. <laughs> Amen? Seems like he could have something to say to us today. And, and his word does as well. Now, I want to talk today, I'll tell you what I want to tell you, and then I hopefully will tell you more of what I said I would tell you. I want to talk today about, you know, the, the downside. Why are people concerned about the economy, what's happened, and how did it happen? You may know more about it than I do, and that may be just a review for you. And then the upside, are there positive things that could come out of this situation, opportunities? Um, and not being a real buff on everything economy-wise, when they asked me to do this, I, I took courage because really what I'm giving you is a part of a sermon. It's an expanded sermon that I gave at, on Audioverse at Advent Hope, the Sabbath School class at Loma Linda. And I gave this, this talk. I'm about to give you. I'm going to embellish it a little more today. I gave this talk. It was amazing. Gave the talk. And I thought, you know, it's a Sabbath school talk, and it's about the economy. But I quoted an economist in the talk, and this economist then listened to my message, somehow got a hold of it, not a Seventh-day Adventist economist from, from, from Texas, not that there aren't Adventists in Texas, but he doesn't have to be one. And, and uh, he listened to it, and a guy from the New York Times called him. This man from the New York Times called him. His name was Paul Valletto. He's in charge of the religion section of the New York Times. And he talked to that man, and the man says, you should listen to this guy's presentation on Audioverse. How many think Audioverse is pretty important? 
uh, audioverse.org. So this economist from the New York Times goes to Audioverse and he listens to my message. And then he listens to five more of my sermons. And then he listens to a bunch of sermons on Audioverse. And he calls me up from the New York Times. It's like this number that was like, it was like slashes across my phone. I don't know how they do that from the New York Times, but it was no number. It was just like, do, 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 do. And he says, this is Paul Valletto from the New York Times. I said, excuse me? <laughs> Paul Valletto, I listened to your sermon on Audioverse. I said, you listened to my sermon on Audioverse? And you're from the New York Times? Like, is this the Time Zone or the magazine? Are they uh, the newspaper? And he goes, no, it's a newspaper. And I said, well, that's amazing. He goes, actually, I was very interested in what you had to say. And he interviewed me eight times that week. He kept calling me back. And that led to an article that, that came out in the, in the end of 2008 in the New York Times. I didn't know it had come out, but some people started calling me up. Hey, we saw you're quoted in the New York Times. I said, you're kidding me. <laughs> the power of the Adventist message. Amen? New York Times. So that's how I think I got here. I think Donna McNeilis or somebody was reading the New York Times. Because, <laughs> you know, they wouldn't listen to me or ordinarily, but I guess because <laughs> the New York Times has something. You know, she, she says, would you do this thing? And I said, well, <laughs> sure. So that's why I'm here. Um, it's not because of any ability. It's because of Audioverse on the New York Times. So... And, and I, I got kind of stressed out, you know. I, uh, uh, you know, I felt a little also also of colitis or something coming on. I I realized that I I really didn't know so much. So I bought this book by someone from Harvard, you know. And uh, it's been a couple of generations since we'd have a graduate in my family from Harvard. It was the last was my great uncle, and uh, he didn't do so well. So I I bought this book. The Ascent of Money by Harvard professor Neil Ferguson. How many of you have ever read this book? Oh, one of you did. Well, thank you. Come forward. No, um, and so there was this, this book by Neil Ferguson, and I said, this is fascinating, The Ascent of Money, and it starts in Babylon, and it, it gives the history of money. Interesting, it starts out in Babylon. Wow. So I'm going through this thing, and I'm fascinated by it. And then, you know, so just a little snippet. You know what a snippet is? It's not a nippet. It's a snippet from the book. It says that one out of every $13 that is paid out, Dr. Douglas, to people in America is paid to someone who's working in the financial services. It appears that more people, when they graduate or when they go to college, they say, we want to go into business because that's where you make the money, you know? And so one out of $13, and there is an increase of people going into business degrees. And I, I, I'm thankful for people in business, and, and, and I'm thankful for that. And these people are definitely uh, frontline individuals. Now, when that class, the business class of 2007 graduated, 2007, you don't mind if I walk around, do you? I, uh, I believe in the health message, too. So, 2007, they graduated. It seemed as if nothing could, could halt global finance. This is Neil Ferguson speaking. Not terrorist attacks on New York or London. Not a raging war in the Middle East. In five years, that is five years prior to 2007, all but two of the world's equity markets delivered double-digit returns on an annualized basis. Don't ask me what that means, but that's what he says. So, in other words, people were making money every year. 
And they it didn't, didn't matter what they put their money into, real estate, commodities, works of art, vintage, wine, exotic, asset-backed securities, investors made money. It seemed like everything was turning to gold. And this, this led to some greed, Jeremy. Greed. Aren't you glad you sat up here? Yeah. And uh, this is what they started to write about. These, these folks began to throw caution to the wind, and the people in the business world spoke of the death of volatility. In other words, because there's these large banks and because we can just manipulate everything, there's not going to be any volatility anymore. They had seminars like this. I actually looked up the seminars, the anti-volatility seminars, and they were like all talking about no more volatility. <laughs> and then they wanted to be like really, you know, into this evolutionary model. The evolution of financial excellence. <laughs> yeah. So this author, Neil Ferguson, no, no lightweight, you know, he works at Harvard. That's his day job. I don't even know what he does at night. But he was in this conference in the Bahamas where they had all these investors, you know, they flew them down there, they're going to talk about how they can make more money. And he stands up and he says, I don't know how long this liquidity can go on. I don't know how long this can last. And he shared his doubts at this investors conference. And the most senior investor, maybe it was Brother Madoff, I don't know who it was, <laughs> but he got up at that conference and he said, we don't need any more guest speakers like this. In other words, he went right to the organizer, uh, organizer, be like going to the organizer of ASI and saying, we don't need any more of that Don McIntosh or whatever. He just went right up. He said, no more. No more of that. We don't need that because we want to hear more good news. More good news. You remember the Roman proverb? Money is like seawater. The more you drink the thirstier you get. And it appeared that people just wanted to make more and more money. So what then happened? 2008, again, quoting from Ferguson, he says, I'm not an economist making sure that you can just blame Harvard, not me. Financial uncertainty gripped the global economy. As you know, there were mounting defaults on subprime mortgages. And this signaled, signaled that the bubble in the U.S. economy, the housing bubble, was bursting, triggering the sharpest fall in house prices since the 1930s. In Sacramento, where I live, this is not Neil Ferguson, there were people that began living in tents downtown in the city. They lost their homes and they were homeless. And so all the people from Al Jazeera and all these networks that are anti-capitalism, they came and filmed them and they were showing it around the world. Look, capitalism has fallen. And all kind of, and you know the biggest housing boom was right where I live in Lincoln, California. The overbuilding of homes was the most pronounced there. When I when I went out there, I I, I moved there from Kansas. I had no clue, you know. Can I hear an amen? So I when I went out there from Kansas, I went into this house and I had to rent a house. And you know how much it was? The rent was two thousand dollars a month plus utilities, two thousand five hundred dollars. I mean, I I don't know about you folks, but that seems like a lot of money to me. <laughs> I told my wife, I said, the Lord let us out here to, to kill us in the wilderness. We're going to die. <laughs> and if and God hadn't intervened, we'd be dead. But as you can see, we're alive. But I went to the bank. This is the whole point of that story. And I went to the bank and I said, look, 
I'm from Kansas. And they said, well, we'll, we'll, well, you need a house. We'll loan you some money. Okay, I'm, I'm a minister. How many of you know ministers are very well, they're loaded? Amen. <laughs> Brother, with spiritual wealth, right? Silver and gold have I none, but such as I have, I... Exactly. Well, that, but the banker didn't know that. And she said to me, the banker says to me, I'll loan you $400,000. I said to my wife, one of us sitting here is stupid. <laughs> but I'm not going to be the second one. You know, I didn't say it out loud. But I mean, and I said, how in the world did they get that money to loan? And they said, I said, how much money do I have to put down for that? None. And this took over the subprime, they called it mortgages, right? What followed resembled a slow, but ultimately, this is Neil Ferguson again, devastating chain reaction. All kinds of asset-backed securities slumped in value. Institutions which had been set up by banks to hold securities off their balance sheets <coughs> found themselves in difficulties. As banks took over the securities, the ratios between their capital and their assets lurched towards their regulatory minima. Central banks from the United States and Europe sought to alleviate the pressure on the banks with interest rate cuts. Didn't work. Having suffered enormous losses, many well-known American and European banks had to turn to not only the Western Central but Asian and Mideastern sovereign wealth funds for equity injections in order to build up their capital losses. And how many of you have found out that didn't even work? Well, you might say it worked somewhat. And so things uh, were not looking good. I could talk about health care, too, in this, but I won't because I've told too many stories already. Let me ask you a question, though. How many government programs since this meltdown has the government originated to help with the problem? How many? What do you, give me a guess. How many programs have they come up with? I mean, aside from the cash for clunkers, which you all know about, but what, what other programs? 50 programs since that time. The current government has about 50 different programs to fight the current recession. I think that's noble. Let me ask you another question. If those programs maximized all the funds that were promised through those programs to the American public and business, how much money would it equal up to? This was the report. Listen to this. The total potential federal government support could reach $23.7 trillion. How many of you think that's a very big number? I mean, <laughs> trillion is like the new dollar here in America. But to get an idea of this, Representative Daryl Issa, Republican from California, not that we would you know, posit that anyone from California knows anything about, you know, eco the economy, given what's happening there, but Daryl had this to say. He said this, if you spend a million dollars a day, if you spent a million dollars a day going back, Landon, to the time of Christ. What was your name? Ben. If you go back to the time of Christ, that... That wouldn't even co come close to $1 trillion. So a million dollars a day from the time of Christ till now wouldn't even equal $1 trillion. And we're talking $23.7 trillion. How many think we got a little problem? <laughs> and they say, oh, no, inflation's not going to come. Hello. So what was the impact on regular people? Trillions of dollars 
Eight trillion, they estimate, of investor wealth evaporated, gone, retirement accounts gone, jobs gone, recession, next thing, inflation. It's no wonder the American Psychological Association says 80% of Americans are stressed. <laughs> I mean, I was talking to the guy downstairs in the UPS booth down here. I got this printed out. Nice, he did a nice job, didn't he? And as he, as he was printing that out, I said to him, I'm going to give a talk. Let me ask you a question. What do you think the most pressing problem is in... Not that I, I, I don't know you, so it's not, it doesn't matter because you're not going to see me again probably unless both of us make it to heaven. But um, what's the most pressing problem you would say in the world today? He goes, the economy. I said, why is that? He goes, I'm working here. <laughs> and he said, I lost my job and he went into it and everything else. We prayed together. I prayed for him. We had a, a, a press time together, right? But he was stressed. He says, I don't know what I'm going to do. Right? American Psychological Association, 80% of Americans. The American Medical Association says that major clinical depression and anxiety are skyrocketing. More and more and more depression. Marriages are crumbling as people play the blame game. Why did you invest in that? Why did we buy this? Why did you do that? I always knew you couldn't control the finances. And of course, charitable giving some people say was well, going to go down and it has in many sectors Luke 21 25 there will be signs in the sun and the moon and the stars and on earth distress of nations with perplexity and you've probably heard that that word perplexity is aporia which means no way out people say hey look there's no way out how are we going to get out of this uh, how many of you in here are nervous at all about the economy anyone here well, only about three of you. That's amazing. So that's enough bad news. Now let me give you some good news. How many of you like some good news here? Amen. All right, some good news. Good news. Good news in the area of health, finances, and faith. Here's some good news. Health. Christopher Rune, economist, University of North Carolina, Greensboro. Research indicates, you're going to love this, that during recessions, people have more family time. They don't have anywhere else to go. <laughs> I have more time with the kids. Better communication. There's less teenage substance abuse. Because you can't really do drugs right in front of your parents. Mental health, and you can't afford it. Mental health issues seem to increase. Anxiety, depression, like he said. But physical health improves. Before you start praying that Employment goes back up. Remember that every 1% increase in employment leads to an increase in death from heart disease of 0.75%. And so if you get a job, you might die sooner. <laughs> the same studies have shown that this is true with liver disease. <clears throat> Deaths increase when labor markets strengthen. How many of you have been praying the wrong thing? It seems there's a healthier diet. There's fewer eating disorders. Obesity diminishes because people are eating out less. In fact, there's been a 57% drop in eating out. Heavy drinking and smoking diminish. It's too expensive. Factory production goes down, which means there's less pollution, which means it's easier to breathe the air. How many of you are just reveling in these blessings so far? <laughs> there's less travel because people can't make their car payments, so they're walking. And they have fewer accidents. And when they are accidents, they don't hurt as bad. <laughs> More people walk, thereby improving health. So, one analyst said this, 
People may be miserable, but at least they're skinny and at least they're sober. <laughs> How am I going to just say amen? This is, a, this is probably the best time to be alive. But there's more good news in the area of finances. All those banks that went down, by the way, this year 69 banks have gone down. 69 this year. Last year there was quite a few more. Those banks usually would offer credit cards, but they don't offer them anymore, which leads to 19% less offers for credit cards in the mail. How many say hallelujah for that? Amen. And people are turning to God during this time. Church of England has seen an increase in hits on its web pages, a 71% increase on its debt advice page. March edition of USA Today, March 30, says that people are crying for help, spiritual and financial. Please are coming into U.S. churches, flooding into the churches, from tiny congregations to mega churches as recession woes steep, seep into the pews. Pastors report that they are distributing benevolent funds in record numbers and that ministries to the unemployed and fearful on the rise. Some are even using their own personal funds to help. Nearly two in three pastors, 62%, report that more people from outside their church are asking for help. And so now you don't have to go knocking. They come knocking. How many think that has some good news in it? When I grew up, my parents always looked forward to Halloween. They said, what other time do people just come knocking on your doors? And we'd have these little primary chessers, and we'd have these tracks and different things, and we'd witness to them, we'd turn the lights on, and we'd say, there's a great controversy between good and evil. As we can tell by what you're wearing. <laughs> so, even though there's bad news, there's good news in finances, there's good news in the health area, there's good news in faith, because people are seeing that this is a very spiritual issue. The Pope, when this first started to happen, he's now come out with an encyclical, I'll we'll get to it in a minute. He said, In the fall of the great banks, money disappears. It is nothing, but the Word of God is the basis of everything. It's the true reality. Before you start getting in love with the Pope, he has recently issued a 144-page document that says, even though money is nothing, I'd like to be in charge of it. <laughs> it was a subtle change, by the way, in the papacy around the time of 1798. Before that time, they had not charged usury, in other words, interest. But after that time, they thought it was pretty good, and they took the 90 thousand ducats that were given by Mussolini and they reinvested them. That was the time they got into finance and they began to manipulate the Italian stock market and everything else and they could change politically all the people that were in power in Italy at that time and now they've expanded that. Some people would suggest globally. Global manipulation. So, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And I believe in the last year and a half, two years, people's hearts have been revealed. The Bible says, some trust in chariots, Psalm 20, verse 7 through 9. Some trust in horses, but we will remember the name of the Lord our God. Amen. They are brought down and fallen, but we are risen and stand upright. Save, Lord, let the King answer us when we call. So, how many of you think that the businessmen and the leaders in economy and, 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 and politics and Ben Bernanke and all those folks are going to be able to fix everything? Ministry of Healing, 183. 
There are not many, even among educators and statesmen, who comprehend the causes that underlie the present state of society. Those who hold the reins of government are unable to solve the problem of poverty, pauperism, and increasing crime. They are struggling in vain to place business operations on a more secure basis. Struggling in what? In vain. This same quote, though, is given in 9T, page 113. Nine testimonies, and it says this, they are struggling in vain to place business operations on a more secure basis, but then she continues, if men, listen to this, 1913, if men would give more heed to the teaching of God's Word, they would find a solution to the problems that perplex them. Amen. How many think that's very good news? Could it be, could it be that now is the best time to look to God's Word. Amen. Could it be now is the best time to be able to take maybe what you learned in this seminar and share it with somebody? Could that be? If I went out on the streets of Phoenix and talked to 11 people this morning who all wanted to talk about the economy, could you? If I prayed with somebody that is a non-Adventist Christian and, 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 and was able to pray together about their problems, could you? I think it's the best time to share let me share, you, share though what is the kerygma, the heart, the core, the pine cone, the pineal gland of this presentation, the zona pellucida. It is this interesting pattern that you see between downturns and upturns in history. And I wanted to share kind of like a personal testimony from my own uh, family history as well. I'm going to look at these downturns and what came out of them, I'm going to look at several things in history. Number one example, let me go with you to 1494. 1494, example number one. 1494, the Medici Bank crashed in Italy. It was a result of speculation and greed by not only the banking system, but in collusion with the church. It crashed. People were so upset they called for a revolution and they called for a what was called the bonfire of vanities. All the glitz and the erotica and the pornography of the day was burned. How many think this is sounding good so far? Protests and calls for revolution and reformation came. There was a young man whose name was Erasmus. Have you heard of this guy? Let's call him vitamin E. Erasmus. He wrote a manual for Christian gentlemen. 1503. And he said in this manual, we need to follow the two true teachings of Christ, not tradition. Because it's not working. Those young men listened to him and said, you're right. We, need to, we don't even know if the church has given us the full Bible. We don't trust their tradition. How many think this is a good thing coming out of this? Downside. And so they said, we need to get back to the original languages. And the New Testament in Greek was released by Erasmus in 1516. There was another young monk who had been fed up as well by traveling to Italy and to Rome, and he said, we need to get back to the basics. And he took that New Testament document that Erasmus in Greek had released, and in 1522 he translated it into German. And then there was another young man whose name was William Tyndale, who in 1526 translated it into English. How many of you are liking this so far? And then Michelangelo used biblical themes for everything and also made his <laughs> uh, jabs against the papacy and even the artwork, if you know much about it, in, in, in the Sistine Chapel. How many of you are thankful for the economic downturn that came and led to the Reformation? Yes. Amen? Amen? Amen. 
Let's fast forward. Example number two. Thank you. The Advent Movement. Go with me back to the spring of 1837. A Great Depression. Oh, by the way, there's been many economic downturns in America. I could click them off. 1830s, 1875, 1893, 1906. All based on various bubbles. I don't have time to go through them all, but this one I think was fascinating. In the spring of 1837, a Great Depression afflicted the northeastern United States. All the banks of New York City, Philadelphia, Baltimore, Boston suspended cash payments. And of 850 banks in the United States, one half of them closed. Ralph Waldo, you're awake, Emerson. He said this, I see a good in such emphatic and universal calamity as the times bring. He's saying, I see a good they that they dissatisfy me with society. The present generation is as bankrupt of principles of hope and property as it is of property and money. I see that a man is not what a man should be. He is the servant of his belly. Amen. I think Ralph Waldo's on to something here. Under common burdens, we say that there is much virtue in the world. And what evil coexists is inevitable, he continues. In other words, he says, under common burdens, this, is, this evil coexists. But I am not aroused, if it's just under common burdens, to say I have sinned and I'm in the gall of bitterness and the bond of iniquity. But when these full measures come, in other words, when we're no longer on uncommon burdens, then it stands confessed. Behold, the boasted world has come to nothing. Society has played out its last stake. It is checkmated. And so... Ralph Walter Emerson said, look, we've been focusing on the wrong things. So, when was it that that depression started? You have that down in your notes? 1837. 1837. And employment went along with it, of course. Rampant employment. Everything that goes with that and a recession and unemployment. And that was, that, that fulminated and it just grew and expanded until guess when? 1843. Oh, what do you suppose all those people that were out of work did? They went to the cheapest thing in town, which was listening to a preacher. <coughs> and they listened to the preachers of the day. And they listened to William Miller. It was Miller time. <laughs> William Miller time. Instead of being drunken with the cares of this world, drunken with the Spirit. Amen? Amen? How many of you are thankful there was an economic depression that set the stage for the Advent movement? Was there an upside to that downside? Fast forward with me again, Jeremy. Are you still with me? I'm still with you. Okay, you're not snoozing? Nothing? That's good. Take, take me now. You know, have you noticed that Ben Bernanke got his Ph.D. in studying the Depression? Yes. And he seems to be quite depressive even now. But I mean, <laughs> but he studied that because he wanted to be a student of history so that he could help us. I'm thankful for people like Ben Bernanke, aren't you? People are thinking about how to help, right? Um, whether or not they're helping, I don't know because I'm not a business person. But 
He studied the Depression, and I thought, if he is studying that, maybe Adventist believers should go back and study what happened in the Adventist church during the time of the Depression. What do you think, Manuel? You think that's a good idea? So I went back into the dusty tombs of my grandfather's library, which he bequeathed to me. And I looked at all the historical records I could find there, and then I found a, a, a book that went through the same history by one of our Adventist historians, and this is what I discovered. Would you like to hear it? Why not? You're here. <laughs> the Great Crash of 1929, this is a quote from this book of Adventist history. The Great Crash of 1929 had signaled a monstrous chain of economic calamities that by 1933 had resulted in an unemployment for 12 to 15 million Americans. More than 5,000 banks had closed, businesses were going under at the rate of more than 30,000 a year, and national income was reduced by two-thirds. By 1932, the Adventist denomination was forced to reduce the ministerial workforce and cut the salaries of those who remained by 20%. This is exactly what some conferences are saying now. Yeah. They're saying, if this keeps going down, we're going to have to reduce the ministerial workforce. And they've already voted no more cost of living increase. Right? As the enormity of the Depression became clear, I continue to quote from this book, Adventists in North America and around the world suddenly found attendance soaring at their evangelistic meetings. Can you say hallelujah? hallelujah. Less ministers, more people at the meetings. I mean, this is something I could only say at ASI. In 1931, more than 10,000 new converts were baptized into the Seventh-day Adventist Church. Some of us were alive at that time. More than 10,600 new converts in 1931 alone. The Adventist Church in America had a remarkable increase of 40% over the number baptized in 1930. With apostasy simultaneously decreasing, this unusual upsurge of baptism produced a net gain in membership of 6%. It had fallen between below 1% increase, which is what we kind of linger around, right? Moreover, this new rate of growth was well sustained for the next four years. How many of you think that the downside, in that downside, there was an upside? C.H. Watson, president of the General Conference, said this, When times generally were at their peak of prosperity and money was flowing liberally into our treasury, the average increase in membership was only 1,200 people a year. The returns of the first half of 1932 with the depression at its lowest ebb yet and with our funds heavily shrunken, so shrunken that we were obliged to cut the budgets and salaries of workers two or three times within a 12-month period. Our returns in souls one mounted up with a net gain of 6,498 souls. How many think that those souls were worth more than all the money they lost? Amen. In January of 1932, eight simultaneous campaigns in the Ontario Conference attracted a total of 3,400 persons on opening night, and hundreds had to be turned away. More than half of the net game of the membership of the North American Division was made possible. Listen to this. Listen to this. Are you awake? Push that person next to you. Go, bang. <laughs> Most, more than half of the net gain in the membership of the North American Division at that time was made possible by the humble, soul-winning efforts of church membership. 
While evangelists increased their own efforts aided by the layman, the laymen themselves were solely involved in many activities, including ASI Youth for Jesus. No, just kidding, but you don't understand what I'm saying. The annual conducting of public meetings in halls, and in some cases the open air, small group meetings in private homes, and, pri and Bible readings for a total number of lay-led evangelistic meetings and events in 1931 of 374,889 separate services. Amen. How many think that sounds like a good goal? Amen? Amen? Adventists were inspired anew in the early years of the Depression with a conviction that the earthly affairs were nearing determination and preparation for the second coming. And conferences were urged by the laity to set aside 10 to 30 percent of their annual gross increase in tithe receipts for the support of public evangelism. You know, I called the North American Division. And I asked them, what's the most successful form of evangelism? You know what they said? Public evangelism still is the best. Don't go to, you know, churches say, oh, no, we have to try something new. Oh, look, why don't you just try what Jesus did? Matthew 4.23, he went preaching, teaching, healing. This still works. Amen? Amen. Right. That's what works. Um, and people were drawn to the Advent movement. Listen to what the newspaper said in that time. This is 1932, the American Mercury. I don't think it's available today. I don't think Buicks or Fords are either. But anyway, the American Mercury, this was said this. This is the secular press writing about the Adventists. The Seventh-day Adventist brethren, among all the divines of the country, have something to say officially about the Depression. And what they have to say is singularly clear and simple. They laugh at the current diagnoses and reject every projected cure as vain and preposterous. They have a simple message. It's not the president that needs to be blamed. It's not Hoover. It's simply the fact that the world is coming to an end. Amen. Review and Herald, December 17, 1931. One leading Protestant journal admitted that the Seventh-day Adventist existence and success were due to a failure on the part of other Protestant churches to proclaim the whole counsel of God. Amen. Can you say amen to that? Amen. How many want to be a part of a movement that again proclaims the whole counsel of God? Amen. Now look, I want to tell you a little human interest story. You like human interest stories? Yes. Are you humans? Yes. Are you interested in this? Yes. My grandfather, my great-grandfather, was the first Seventh-day Adventist in our family, but it wouldn't have happened without an economic depression. He, worked, he came from, from Scotland and Ireland during the potato famine of the 1840s and 50s, and he came over to the United States, and he began working on the New York Stock Exchange, when it actually exchanged stock, livestock. And he worked there, but he lost his job. There was a crash, he lost his job. He goes to Colorado, he starts a silver mine. He has 12 people working for him. He loses everything as the price of silver plummets. And he walks downtown Boulder, and he's walking downtown in Boulder, Colorado, and there's a man that has the Bible, Zephaniah, and he opens it up and he says, there'll come a time when your silver and your gold are worth nothing. And he was preaching on the street corner. He was a Seventh-day Adventist man. And my grandfather says, this is very interesting. He says, well, come to my home and we'll study some more. And he studied with him the whole week, and he fed him and he put him up. But then he did something odd. He went to church on Saturday. Instead of studying, my grandfather says, what's wrong with you? 
And he explained it to him. And he said, why don't you come with me to this camp meeting? And so great-grandfather went to that camp meeting. And he went to the camp meeting. And he heard the message of the Adventist church. And he said, this is the correct message. This is what I want to do with the rest of my life. He was baptized and became a Seventh-day Adventist evangelist. Amen. Wouldn't it happen without an economic downturn? I'm thankful for that downturn. Amen? Amen. Whoa. Wow. Can I tell you another human interest story? Are you okay? That was back in the 1870s, 80s, and 90s, right? Then his son, my grandfather, Donald, I'm named after him, Donald, he became a Seventh-day Adventist minister, but all of his brothers, my great uncles, many of them decided to be, go after the wealth of this world. One went to Harvard, one went to Caltech. They made all kinds of great educational advancements and all of the benefits that came with that. But grandfather decided to be a Seventh-day Adventist evangelist. And during that depression of 1932, he lost his job. He was working in Ohio, and you know those budget cuts, 20% reduction? He was one of them. Cut, sliced, slashed, goodbye, not yet. And so he said, what am I going to do? I've got to feed my family. So he went out and he started to sell something. I don't know what it was, vacuum cleaners or something. And then he was walking along the street. He goes, why am I doing this? That's ridiculous. I might as well at least sell books. So he began to sell Adventist books, and pretty soon he was talking to people about the economy, and pretty soon he raised up two congregations, and they had enough tithe to hire him back again. <laughs> At the same time, my other grandfather, Gordon, my middle name's Gordon, <laughs> Donald McIntosh, my grandfather once said, Gordon Mott, you know, Mott's applesauce and... Macintosh apples, a smashing success. Anyway, they, um, at the same time, grandfather Mott, who, you know, these were not together. This was in the next generation. But here he was in Weirton, West Virginia. Weirton, West Virginia. Steel capital. Had this wonderful steel mill there that's, I guess if you can call a steel mill wonderful. But, it, you know, there's a lot of pollution. But it was jobs. And he had a great job. And he had seven kids, one of which was my mother, interestingly and logically, cohesively <laughs> enough. And he goes, and his friend is there, and they're all talking about the economy, and his friend says, you need to come, you need to come, and to this meeting with me, there's this guy that's giving a, a series of lectures, and you've got to go hear him. And so they, he finally talks him into it, and he goes to hear this series of lectures, and as he's listening to the series of lectures, this man, it's, it's a sermon, it's a, a public evangelistic series, and this man is talking about the economic principles of the Sabbath. And he says, look, if you, if the Bible says, six days shalt thou labor and do all thy work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath. And then he said this, he said, see what God is promising here? If you worship him on the Sabbath day, he'll give you work for six days. Can you say amen to that? I mean, six days. If, if you keep his, your side of the promise, which is you rest on that day, he'll give you work. But well, my grandfather already had a job. He said, well, what happens if I have a job and lose it? He said, God will take care of that too. And you don't want to receive the mark of the beast. That's what the minister told him and explained it to him. And he goes, I do not want to receive the mark of the beast. So he goes home, middle of the depression, and he goes to my, my grandmother. He says, look, honey, we got a choice. We can have the one remaining job here in our family. Or we can receive the mark of the beast potentially. <laughs> what should we do? And they both prayed about it and they said, We don't want to receive the mark of the beast. And so he quit his job at Weirton Steel because of the message of the Bible. Amen. Amen. 
And when he did that, everyone thought he had lost what was remaining of his gray matter. <coughs> He's walking home one day, and this lady comes by in a car, picks him up, and says, Gordon, I heard that you quit your job. Why? She said, I do not want to receive the mark of the beast. <laughs> Explained it to the lady. And she goes, and that's why I'm worshiping on the Sabbath. And you know what the lady said? You're a Jew. <laughs> Jews do very well financially. Kind of a bad thing to say, but that's what she said. And she said, I'm a Jew too. I'll take care of you. This was a Jewish lady. And so this Jewish lady began to send him all kinds of people to fix their cars and stuff. And everything. Later on she said, you need to start an auto, auto mechanic shop yourself. So they start the auto mechanic shop. And then he decides to put a picture of the Ten Commandments on the front of the shop. Now where would you go get your car fixed? <laughs> if you had all these shops in the middle of the Depression, where would you go? This was... ASI member in the marketplace. <laughs> and guess what happens? Instead of working all day at Weirton Steel and coming home tired, guess who had to work with him? All of his sons. And guess what he had to do? He said, look, I can't really witness unless I memorize God's Word because that's the way I can witness and I'll give a discount to people in the Depression to fix their car if they listen to my Bible study. So he memorized the Bible studies and he put a shop Bible there. When people listened to it, 40, 50 people came into the church and all of the ch family was working together. He wasn't perfect, but how many think that was better than working at Wheaton Steel? And in the middle of that economic downturn, there was an upturn in my family that then led his son, Sonny, my uncle, to when he was working on a barge in West Virginia and he was a good worker, but he started to share about the Sabbath and he got fired. And when he got fired, this was now the next generation, this was in the, I mean, 70s or 80s I think it was he was uh, assigned a court attorney who was a Buddhist and this Buddhist was listening to him and she became so convicted she started keeping the Sabbath and then he started he went to the highest level of the Supreme Court of West Virginia and shared the Sabbath truth where did he learn that from his father who had followed God's word how many think there are upturns and downturns so <laughs> so, thank you for sitting here. What do you think? If these downturns led to upturns in the Reformation, if those downturns led to upturns at the beginning of the Advent movement, if those downturns led to a revival among Laodicean Adventists in the time of the Depression, that was a summary. Could there be something today for us? Amen. How many think there's something to Look, if the New York Times picks up an obscure, arcane, somewhat bizarre preacher's sermon on Audioverse and puts it in the New York Times, how many think people are going to listen to a message today? Amen. Sitting next to a hedge fund manager on the plane as I was on the way to the Ukraine. He was on his way to New York. And I said, what do you think the biggest problems in the world are today and how to fix them? And he says, he told me his story as a hedge fund. He says, I don't know how to fix them. I lost my marriage. I lost everything. I'm frankly looking for a new way to look at life. And he was very interested in the Advent message. You see, 
This research by David Beckwith that I mentioned in that initial sermon that got me into this problem was called Praying for a Recession, the Business Cycle, and Protestant Religiosity in the United States. And they studied recession cycles between 1968 and 2004, and they recognized this, and I quote, the rate of growth in evangelical churches jumped by 50%. By comparison, mainline Protestant churches and others declined. And you know who they used as the, as the, as the group to really study for church records? The most impeccable church records were kept by the Seventh-day Adventist Church. And what they discovered in this, in this little treatise was that Seventh-day Adventists have an increase in membership because people say, look, they believe something. They're saying something, and they believe it. They have a sense of certainty. This is not postmodern Adventism. Right? This is not the emergent church. This is not the submergent church. This is the detergent church, amen? <laughs> this is like the cleansing of the sanctuary message, amen? amen? So, let me just say to you, I believe that now is the best time since my grandfather's days to be certain and clear about what the Adventist message is. Amen. I believe that now is the best time to offer Daystar Academy type education. The best time to be involved in agriculture work. Amen. So when you're out there on that pivot, and when you're out there training those kids, you're doing the best work. Amen? Amen. That's what it says in Testimonies Volume 6. And I believe that more than the Wall Street Journal. Amen? Amen. I believe it's the best time for health evangelism. Amen. I think it's a good time for people to get a new start. Yeah. Amen? Amen? I think it's the best time to start up a new college <laughs> that has these principles as a school of the prophets. You know what it says at the end of time, youth are being encouraged to attend our schools, which should become more and more like the school of the prophets. And that's not spelled P R O. F-I-T-S. <laughs> I believe there's a place for Washita Hills. And I'm somewhat partial to Weimar at this point. But I, I believe there's a place. How many think we need more schools like that? Because it says more and more. Did you know that the first formally de designated field school of evangelism was not Arise? It was not Mission College. It was not AFCO. It was not AFLAC. It was. It came, A.G. Daniels, during the time of the Depression, under the auspices of Ellen White's counsel, and under this revival that came in his life, he started to first formally design these field schools of evangelism. They were 17 weeks in length. And they're doing the same things that Souls West, Life, Mission College, Arise, AFCO. Look, on this very, and during this very gathering, I've had at least people from four or five countries come to me and say, we need to start a school like the Amazing Facts College of Evangelism in our country. We need a school of the prophets. How many say amen to that? Amen. That just shows us <clears throat> that young people are responding to the message. And that people are responding to the message. So I think it's the best time to often offer, offer work-based Christian education that's evangelistic in nature. I think it's the best time for health care reform done the right way. How many of you are very optimistic about 
Barack's plan to uh, redo the, uh, the health care. How many, I just want to see, raise your hand. Let me think that this is really going to work. Just for those of you who are political officers, I see no hands going up. I don't know what it means. They could be dead, but I see no hands. But I think if you look at the fact that Truman, and since the time of Truman, there has been five attempts by different administrations to fix health care, how many of them have succeeded? So what I'm thinking is, rather than Barack, most people need Barack Lee. <laughs> they need preventive care. Can I say, can I hear an amen there? I, look, and I believe, I believe that there are companies that are asking for this. There is the Cigna Corporation that, that approached the Coronary Health Improvement Project, the CHIP program, and said, we want you to teach us how to do this in our company. There is the Kaiser Corporation that is talking about that now. There are people that are looking at Seventh-day Adventists, and they're coming because of the faithfulness of Adventists in a generation before, and they're saying, help us with health care. And I believe that the end time work is going to be the health ministry. Amen. How many believe that's true? Amen. Well, if you don't believe it's true, read one volume, just one volume, Testimonies Volume 6. It covers the need to start educational institutions and it covers the fact that health reform will be the closing work. So I believe it's the best time to reassess and reinvest. Oh, by the way, <laughs> Let me just read something on health here. Do you mind? No. Your class. Slow down. Please. Brother John, we have got to keep on the move. I will go slower for you, but only for you, for no one else. <laughs> Bible says, Psalm 107, verse 20. He sent his word and healed them. How many think what we need in healing work is a revival of the Genesis 129 message? The revival of the Exodus 1526 message? A revival of a message of health? Amen, amen. Testimonies, Volume 6 has this to say. Actually, Medical Missionary, page 55, sorry. Medical Missionary, page 55. John, here it is. The great crisis is just before us. So this is talking about the time just before the great crisis. Now is the time for us to sound the warning message by the agencies that God has given. Never are we to lose sight of the great objects for which our sanitariums are established. The advancement of God's, listen to this, closing work on earth. Are we going to have sanitariums at the end of time? And they're going to be frontline they're going to be a part of the closing work. How many think we should get behind that? Amen. Schools of evangelism, <coughs> schools of health evangelism. Is that good enough? Good. CHIP programs, depression recovery programs, all these different things. And you know what? I am so thankful to be a Seventh-day Adventist Amen. because that church has an answer to the problems that are, those people are facing that clinical depression. Do we have an answer to that? Here's another one. Evangelism schools. I think it's the best time to be involved in that. Did I mention I work at one? <laughs> it's the best time to go door to door. Amen. If the last message to Laodicea says, Behold, I stand at the mailbox. No. I stand at the door and knock. I think that's true. Amen. 
Testimonies, Volume 9, shows people going from door to door, light streaming throughout neighborhoods. And you say, wait a minute, people won't listen to me at the door. They certainly won't if you don't go. <laughs> but they did a study. How many, of you, how many of you think, what church do you suppose has the most people that try and go door to door? Oh, you're up on this, the Jehovah's Witnesses. Guess what they discovered in a recent study that was recently released, I guess, within the Kingdom Halls with no windows. But someone looked in and saw the study. They did a study, and guess what they discovered? These are Jehovah's Witnesses. How many think you could learn something from Jehovah's Witnesses? Even if it's the wrong thing. You can learn something, right? This is what they discovered. That there seemed to be less people opening doors during the last 10 years, but now in the last 18 months, the doors are beginning to open up. And they discovered, in their study they said, we have discovered that people are out of work. And so that means they are home. And when we knock on the door, they're answering the door. We found that to be true the Amazing Facts College of Evangelism. And I think we found it to be true in ASIU for Jesus, didn't we? Those 18 souls that you brought to Camp Camelback, you knocked on their door. Landon was driving the other day. His contacts didn't come to the meeting. So he's at the, hey, someone, you tell me if this is true. I think it is. He comes to this intersection. His contacts, go to the report tonight. You'll hear it maybe. He goes to this intersection and there's these two kids sitting in their car and he goes, well, the people didn't come with me to my meetings. Maybe I'll ask them. So he goes, hey, what are you guys doing tonight? And they said, nothing. He goes, follow me. I took him to the evangelistic meeting. Amen? Yeah. Look, you, you can go car to car. <laughs> so let me, just, let me just kind of break it down here, Frank, and bring it to a close. I don't know what time it is. What time is it? We've got uh, over 15 minutes. I got 15 minutes. Good, we can take some questions. It's the best time, I believe, to reassess and reinvest. How many think that's true? I would suggest this time don't invest in the things that maybe you were investing in that you lost over the last 18 months. I've been across this country and talked to people on the most uh, probably discouraging time to go on a fundraising trip talking about Christian education. And I've been in the homes of people that said, oh, I've lost so much and I wish I would have given this to you 10 months ago because this is God's work. How many of you have ever had those thoughts? Listen to the investment of Christ. He says of you, Elias, you're bought with a price. You're bought with a price. He says it to each of you, you're bought with a price. He invested in each of you. He invested in me. How are you thankful for his investment? But you're not bought with any price, Maxine. You're bought not with silver, not with gold but with Christ's blood. Amen. How many are thankful for that investment? Amen. Certainly the Lord says this, all men have been bought with this infinite price, infinite price. By pouring the whole treasure of heaven into this world, by giving us in Christ all heaven. What was given to purchase you? all heaven. How many of you have ever thought of that? And with this purchase price, this is what she says, God has purchased the will. How many like that last song Amen. that Kristen sang? The will 
the affections, that's the feelings, the mind, this is what he purchased of yours, mm -hmm. the soul mm -hmm. of every human being. Mm -hmm. How many think his, his portfolio is vast? Amen. He bought you. And then after he bought you, Jeremy, it says in Ephesians 4, 8, he gave gifts to men. So he buys you, and then he gives gifts to men. How many of you say hallelujah to that? I was reading on the plane down here, and I didn't put it in my notes, so I'll read it to you. And I was reading this, Councils on Stewardship. Have you ever read this? Listen to this. This is something else. In the section, The Danger of Prosperity. How many think that the Lord's taken care of that danger recently? <laughs> she says this. This is page 150. Very few realize the strength of their love for money until the test is brought to bear on them. Many who profess to be Christ followers then show that they're unprepared for heaven. Their works testify that they love wealth more than their neighbor or their God. Like the rich young ruler, they inquire the way of life, but when it's pointed out and the cost estimated, they see the sacrifice of earthly riches is demanded, and they decide that heaven costs too much. Now listen to this. This is what I wanted to really bring out. The greater, sorry, Virginia, the greater the treasures laid up on earth... The greater the what? Treasures laid up on earth. The more difficult it is, the greater the treasures laid up, the more difficult it is for the possessor to realize, now listen to this next phrase, to realize they are not his own. How many of you today realize that whatever you have is not yours? That's right. Amen. Amen. And if you have a problem, the reason it says, the greater the treasures laid up on earth, the more difficult it is for the possessor to realize that they are not his own, but are lent him to be used to God's glory. Amen. Amen. Wow. <clears throat> Listen to this. One other one. Can I read one more from this? Yeah. It's a little gem from 153. I was shown that there is no lack of means among Sabbath-keeping Adventists. Amen. You're not having that experience, sister? Page 153. There is no lack of means among Sabbath-keeping Adventists, page 153. At present, their greatest danger, she says, their greatest, how many of you want to know your greatest danger? Their greatest danger is in their accumulation of property. Wow. Amen. Wow. Let me say something here. The reason I brought that out now is why? Because Christ invested in you. He bought you with a price, right? With the precious blood of Jesus. He bought your mind, your will, your soul, and then he gave you gifts. And sometimes we get confused and think, they're ours. They're not ours. God entrusts men with means. Listen to this. For what purpose does he give you means, or me? Genesis 12, 12. You're blessed to be a blessing. God entrusts men with means. He gives them power to give wealth, power to get wealth. 
and he asked for a return on his own. How many think he still is asking for a return on his own? Now listen to this. Christ Object Lessons 351. Money. What? Money. Is of no more value than sand. Only as it is put to use in providing for, listen to these categories. Number one, the necessities of life. Number two, in blessing others. And number three, in advancing the cause of Christ. There's only three categories. How many of you think this ASI offering this year should be a testimony to faith in God, not in our resources. Amen. You see what I'm saying? It's an act of worship, really, that offering appeal. What was your reference for that? Christ, Object Lessons, page 351, paragraph 3. Now, let me ask you this. Every time I talk about this, people say, well, do you think the economy is going to come back? I have no question it will come back. <coughs> It'll come back because Revelation 13 says it'll come back and Revelation 18 says it'll come back and then it'll crash again right at the end. But the only difference this time in this globalization of economic downturn is that now everywhere around the world people have been impacted with this downturn. Everywhere around the world, all at the same time, people are saying, man, I need to turn to God. All around the world this is happening. And guess what God has given? A signal call to say, what are your priorities? This is going to go back up. That market's going to become a bull again. It's going to go to the top. And you have have a decision right now. Am I going to put my money there and wait and procrastinate and say, what's in it for me? Or am I going to invest in God's treasure work today? The economy is going to come back. Listen to what Great Controversy 491 says. Men will be planting and building and eating, unconscious of the final irrevocable decision. Testimonies to Ministers 474, and I will slow down, John. Go, make possessors of lands and money drunk with the cares of this world. Remember Miller time? Make them drunk. Keep the money in our own ranks. Make them care more for money than the upbuilding of Christ's kingdom. That's the temptation right now. Here's what it says, 5T, 464, 465. You say, wait a minute, what's going to happen? Well, let me tell you what's going to happen. It says it in Luke 21 and then recorded here in 5T, 464, 465. As the siege of Jerusalem by the Roman armies was the signal for flight to the Judean Christians, so the assumption of power on the part of our nation in a decree enforcing the papal Sabbath will be a warning to us. What's going to happen? There's going to be an economic recovery, but then there's going to be this, there's going to be also tied with that. People can't buy or sell except those have the mark of the beast. And at that time, when that comes up, you've got to leave everything. Amen. You think your internet's going to work for your electronic banking? It says this, it will then be time to leave the large cities, preparatory to leaving the smaller ones for retired homes and secluded places among the mountains. How many of you think at that time people are going to have a struggle if they don't invest in God's kingdom now? 
Well, let me just say, how does someone, a Gentile, someone that's not a Christian, someone from the secular world writing, how did they word this? Felipe Fernandez Armesto, professor of history at Queen Mary College in London, had this to say. The Bible has a formula for dealing with the debacle that follows corruption, materialism, and greed. What is it, Felipe? He continues, when Sodom and Gomorrah buckle and crumble, anyone who looks back is lost. But Lot is happy to escape with his life. And the moral is clear, don't look back. How many think Philippi's onto something? I think it's the best time to reassess and reinvest. My grandfather, he lost everything in the Depression, but he still continued being a faithful Seventh-day Adventist minister. His wife died after having six strokes, and then he was still alive. And I can remember just like yesterday when he said to me, I don't know why I'm alive, but it must be for you. Come and move me. I want to live with you. And I went out to his house, and I loaded up the moving truck, and I drove grandfather across the country. And every day he'd get up and he'd say, my wife is gone. You're like my wife. And he would treat me to a breakfast just like he had his wife. He would wash my clothes. Everything in his bank account went to help pay for my education and for my brother's education. And every day he woke up, he says, I don't know why I'm alive, but it must be for you boys. Amen. And he lived his last three years depleting all his resources to put me through school. In his downturn, it was my upturn because I finally saw someone that loved the Lord and his cause more than anything on earth. And there he was. I would come home from school and I would tell him what I learned that day. And he'd say, get Testimonies Volume 3 out. Get Testimonies Volume 6 out. He was losing his short-term memory, but everything he had invested in was still in his long-term memory. And he, just like Elder Mills, could remember those old things. And he gave me all those gems. And, and he saved me from so many things. And he poured his life out in front of me. Amen. My brother was stealing things from the bank account to do drugs. I told my grandfather about it, and he said, we must just live the love of Jesus before him, and someday he'll come around. He marked his Bible with all the passages concerning heaven. He marked his hymn book with all his favorite hymns. And I remember his last day. I knew he was going to die. I said, what do I do? He said, Sing me the songs I've underlined in my hymn book. Read me the text I've underlined in my Bible. And they were all about heaven. And I remember his volume of Christ object lessons, where it says in the last page, heaven will not be strange to them, because they have heaven in their hearts. Amen. Amen. Heaven will not be strange. Because they have heaven in their hearts. Amen. Amen? Amen. It's the best time to reassess, reinvest. I'm thankful for my grandfather's reinvestment. But some of you are grandfathers and grandmothers. Right? Amen. 
I'm thankful for those who said no. There was a student who came to our class. He was an attorney. He was a prosecuting attorney. He decided he was making $144,000 a year. He just got a pay raise. And that struck his mind. He said, $144,000. I've heard that somewhere. I should be involved in building up the $144,000 instead of making $144,000 a year for me. And so he enrolled in the School of Evangelism. He did an evangelistic series. He saw some people baptized and he cast in the rest of his inheritance. His retire everything, and he sent some next people to the AFCO class, and he sent them through, and he said, the best thing on earth is winning souls. During this economic downturn, there were all kinds of people saying, we need to go back to the gold standard, or some people. And so I looked it up. You know, the price of gold had gone way back up. But then I looked to the Bible, and I found this text in Isaiah 13, 12. It says this, I will make a man more precious than fine gold, mm -hmm. even a man, than the golden wedge of Ophir. Mm -hmm. How many of you want to invest in gold? The gold of the scriptures. Yes. Mm -hmm. Amen. And so I end with two quotes, one from John Rockefeller. He said this, I've made many millions, but they brought me no happiness. The poorest men I know is the man who has nothing but money. And then one last quote. Someone I know never usually have, I don't think I've ever even read much less quoted in, in a sermon except this one or presentation. Stephen King. Well, listen to this. And I'm going to close with this. A couple of years ago, Stephen says, I found out what you can't take it with you means. I found out while I was lying in the ditch with the side of a country road covered with mud and blood and with the tibia of my right leg poking out of the side of my jeans like a branch of a tree taken down in a thunderstorm. I had a MasterCard in my wallet. But when you're lying in a ditch with broken glass in your hair, who cares about your MasterCard? No one accepts it. We all come into this world naked and broke. We may be dressed when we go out, well-dressed, but we're still broke. Warren Buffett, going out broke. Bill Gates, going out broke. Tom Hanks, broke. Stephen King, broke. Not a crying dime. All the money you earn, all the stocks you buy, all the mutual funds you trade, all that is mostly smoke and mirrors. It's still going to be a quarter past getting late, whether you tell time on a Timex or a Rolex. So I want you to consider making your life one long gift to others. Amen. And why not? Everything you have is on loan anyway. All that lasts is what you pass on. So pass it on before it's too late. I think that's the best thing Stephen King ever wrote. And it's not fiction. It's not an opinion. It's an amazing fact. Amen? How many of you want to finish this seminar by 
beseeching the Lord to move on your heart this weekend to reassess, reevaluate, and ask the Lord what He would have you to do to reinvest. How many want to do that? Amen. I don't want to close without you praying about that. Would you be willing to pray with the person next to you? Would you be willing to kneel down and pray for that person next to you? Would you do that? Let's do that together as we close. This media was produced by Audioverse for ASI, Adventist Layman's Services and Industries. If you would like to learn more about ASI, please visit www.asiministries.org. Or if you would like to listen to more free online sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.